Welcome to another episode of Morning Coffee with your host, Rick Alexander. I started this show to talk about all of the interesting, complex, paradoxical, and sometimes uncomfortable aspects of the human experience. If you get anything from this show, the greatest compliment you could give me is to share this show with somebody that you think the message may resonate with or to head to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Additionally, if you want to interact with me, you can follow me at rickalexander underscore on Instagram. Without further ado, on to the show. to the Morning Coffee Podcast with your host, Rick Alexander. Today, I am speaking with the founder of The Distance Project, founder of Physiology First, David Bidler. For those of you that have been listening to the Morning Coffee Podcast, specifically the second channel for a while, know that we had David on right before the pandemic to talk about you know, all things mental health, especially the future of mental health in the world. And of course, all of that has been kicked into overdrive the, the need to have real productive conversations about what mental health even is has become increasingly more important to me so i am uh, super excited to have david on so hey man i just want to say thank you for uh, coming back and joining me and talking about this uh, really important issue well rick i have to thank you man i i can't believe that it's been over a year since our first convo and I guess we were talking right before the pandemic happened, right? This wasn't mm-hmm. even on the radar in our first conversation. And we were diving into what a critical issue this would be for the future at large, you know? And that's what we're gonna talk about, I hope, today a little bit, is that this is an issue that impacts the future at large. And then this wave of change that actually changed the course of the future happened in the past year. So there's so much to dive into, I think, from now to then and beyond. Totally. And so Physiology First has grown a lot since that first conversation. It seems like now you guys have, uh the university. Do you want to talk a little bit about the mission of Physiology First, just so we can kind of ground this conversation and what the work that you're doing in the world? Sure, Rick. So the, the, the macro of Physiology First is we're working to create a new approach to understanding the mind, body, and brain in the 21st century, and a new approach to mental health. And that, that's the macro. It's the big picture conversation that I think we're all going to have to grapple with mm. um, as, as the world changes us and as the world itself changes. Um, it, on, a, on a tangible level, on an actionable level, on something people can do and run with, it's a new approach to learning. I think that our traditional approach to education has been to learn about everything but us. And then if we find time later in our lives at some point, we circle back to saying, I wonder what I am biologically. I wonder, you know, what are the critical things I would need to know about myself as a human being to understand the world outside of me? And anybody can sort of take that physiology first approach and use our curriculum to, to guide that process. And then on a structural level, we are a main based nonprofit organization and we focus on brain and body based learning and 21st century life skills for students and for the larger community that supports them. Hmm. This idea of 21st century life skills is really interesting to me when I hear the conversation about mental health. And of course, we we just are coming off of uh, what the world calls mental health awareness day, right? It, it's, it's always struck me that one, this conversation of mental health awareness feels flawed in its approach in some really massive way. And part of that is because you see people, you see the statistics, like, you know, 60% of people struggle with a mental health issue. It's like, what, what are we talking about right now? 100% of people have to grapple with the human experience and make sense of it. And so what is it that we're even talking about? You mean for people that can't pretend anymore, that actually have to seek help? Like what, what is it we're talking about? So in your opinion, when, we start, when we're talking about something like this, let's frame the conversation for people. Like how, how do you see this? Well, you know, I, I, we put up a tweet not that long ago and it had to do with COVID and the, the impact on kids. And this tweet uh, went viral. It was the, the farthest reach that we've ever had. It was 10,000 Instagram likes, thousands of retweets. And I'm thinking, wow, something about this hit some subconscious current, mm-hmm. a current of thought, a thing that we're all thinking and feeling. And I think that the point that you just brought up, it, it hits a similar un- subconscious vein where we realize that there's a critical flaw in the nature of the conversation. We're, we're using the word health in this kind of Orwellian backwards way in which it kind of secretly means illness and nobody relates it or correlates it to health. So that alone is a, is a trap of language. It's almost like a mental heuristic that we hung an old word on and can't update. 
And we started as an organization to ask, if we want to take a new approach to mental health, the first step is going to be to change the language of mental health. Why is it so skewed? Why is it so backwards? Why don't we hear how, why don't we hear the word mental health and think health? We hear the word mental health and think illness. We think anxiety, we think depression, we think isolation, we think addiction. We don't think about purposely, proactively upgrading the strength and the capacity of the human mind. Why is that? And when we went to look through the history of this, you know, the word mental health is a term from 1908. 1908 is the year that the Ford released the Model T mm. and the year that we invented the vacuum cleaner. So like a lot has happened since 1908 and 2021. And if we don't update the language, we're going to run into this really sticky area where we don't know what we're talking about. It's vague and abstract. If we update the language, I think that we may literally crack the code here in saying, I bet you, I'm willing to bet, I'm an optimist at heart, that there's a wave of support that can be, you know, can come to the forefront here and help young people improve how they feel, improve how they, what they're capable of, improve what they believe their own potential to be and help to guide them into a future that feels amazing. And we have to ask what's holding back that wave of support. And I, I really think it's, it's old language in a new time. Yeah. And so that makes me feel as though it's tied into a much bigger issue, right? Which is like, when we talk about healthcare, we're actually talking about sick care. Like we're, all of these ideas have, have, well, as you just said, 1908, right? So hundreds of years of conditioning around what they are and what they mean. And so that in itself to me feels like if we're at a point where we're no longer making progress. And I think, you know, right now, if you look, I mean, more people are taking the, the off ramp than ever before in this life early. Right. And so it just tells you like that something is incorrect about the way that we're, that we're going about approaching all of this. And so it sounds to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you're taking a bit more of a offensive rather than defensive approach. Like it's uh, something that you actually sort of take as a as a human take responsibility for creating wellness in uh, rather than let me wait until things start to fall apart and then let me react to those yeah you know it, it's twofold i think that it's proactive rather than reactive because okay. we have to understand mental health um and to, you know you and i are going to run into this issue throughout the podcast of using the term and trying to reinvent it why do we use the term we use it so someone can hang on to the conversation so that we don't update the language to the point that the people the kids in our communities have no idea what the hell we're talking about but by being stuck to the term you'd have to probably break it down and ask are we talking about psychology neurobiology physiology are we talking about the impact of technology on physiology and are we asking the critical question, you and I touched on this in the first show, which is if what we're seeing in a, in, a, in a rising cascade of increased chronic stress, increased anxiety, increased depression, if what we're seeing is a natural physiological response to a brand new environment, then that's not a disorder. It's physiology working exactly as it's designed from an evolutionary survival perspective. The problem then is either the environment or not having the skills to navigate the environment. But until we're talking about that with that proactive skill-based language, I think, again, we're, we're culturally sort of secretly talking about mental illness. I saw a post, uh, a news article that said, you know, a rise, rise in mental health, like as a, as a great concern. I think a rise in mental health would be wonderful. You, people would be more healthy. <laughs> right, it right. doesn't seem to mean that. So yeah, I, think, I really think that if we can crack the language code and update it for the time that we're living in, we'll actually be talking about facets of physiology, neurobiology, psychology, and sociology. And then we can act on those multiple facets. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In my work in the last year specifically, I've really started to think about psychology and physiology as uh, different ways of measuring the same thing, right? You have an internal climate and you can measure that through temperature or barometric pressure. It's kind of like the same idea because I think a lot of people are taking pills for, I've seen this in my own family, problems that perhaps they they're not psychological problems, right? They're, they're anybody that was sedentary that didn't move would have this issue, right? So I think that there's sometimes there are problems that are, that are showing up that seem to be psychological in nature when in fact they might be solved better through the physiology, right? Through a good movement practice. Yeah, you know, I think when we come back to that fundamental question of what am I? And I, I, mean, I don't even mean this in the sort of the philosophical sense, I mean it in the biological sense. 
if we understood, so what is the human biological organism? Then we can start to ask what things does it need? How much sleep, how much sunlight, how much exercise, how much, what, what type of nutrient quality? And if it didn't get those the needs met, those base level physiological needs, what response would occur? What is the natural response to, to ultimately drive a change in behavior to have those needs met? Because that's sort of the basis of evolution and survival. But until we talk about, until we know what those needs are, until we establish what physiological resonance is, we're going to continue to grapple with the fact that physiology is going to drive psychological state. And when we start with a process of psychological inquiry with no physiological baseline assessment, we're always going to be lost because we haven't even taken a look mm-hmm. at whether the root cause is something more obvious or something more complex. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. Now, how do you feel like, what do you feel is the appropriate conversation to be having then? Like what's uh, what are, how's a better way to frame this thing? I, I think that if, if folks had, I, one of the things we say as an organization is that it, there is no 21st century mental health practitioner. And what I mean by that is that there is no PhD program for somebody who is an expert in all of the multiple facets that seem to be, you know, coalescing in this term mental health all the facets that influence the state of the mind. You'd have to be a, an expert in, in, in technology, in neurobiology, physiology, psychology. You'd have to be an expert in nutrition. There's no one that you can go to to seek this out. But what you can do, I think, is, is a twofold approach of A, having a baseline sense of what physiological resonance is. And what I mean by that is if during this conversation with you, my heart rate was pegged at you know, 80, 80, to, 80 to 90% of max heart rate, if I was sweating, if my pupils were dilated, if it seemed like I was in a state that I was running max effort sprints, that wouldn't be a physiologically resonant state to be sitting in a chair having a conversation with a, with a friend. So we would know that there was a physiological, uh, that, that, that there was something that would drive psychological state. Mm-hmm. And none of us are going to have the exact metrics on what physiological resonance means for each person, but you can certainly start with a thought experiment and work backwards. And the thought experiment is, you know, imagine for um, example, you signed up for a research project and they said, look, Rick, we want you to spend seven days in this, uh, it's a sleep study. You should go into this little white room. It's a sensory deprivation room. There's no, it's just all white walls, white floor. And here are the rules. You can only sleep two hours a night. You can eat as much as you want. Have all the food that you want, but all that we have to eat are fruity apples. All right, I'll picture some other sugary cereal. You have to drink a mandatory 90 ounces of caffeine a day. And you have to spend your waking time in either a seated position in a chair or lying in a bed. We could imagine that Rick would walk out a very different human being. We would have disrupted physiology so much that your mental acuity, your perception of the world, it would be completely skewed. And it would be unreasonable to ask you questions to assess your psycholo- psychological state in such a state of physiological dysregulation. And I feel like if we could work that thought experiment backwards to something more tangible, we could say, well, how much sleep, how much, what, what role is, is nutrition, how much physical movement does this biological organism need to not feel anxious, chronically stressed, or chronically depressed? And until we ask that question, we're always going to be analyzing psychology first, which you can't see you measure. Right? I can measure heart rate a lot easier than I can measure someone's thoughts. So it seems like if we can just start with what is clear to assess, and understand we can then begin to work the conversation up the hierarchy of, of human needs and of, of sort of cortical processes instead of starting with the most complex thing in the world which is the human mind and working back to the body if we ever in fact get there right right wow that's interesting so that makes it real right so that that is a really good example because it it, it shows you right like it instantly i'm like okay so i would deteriorate right and it wouldn't have anything to do with my psychology essentially i think where the gray area becomes what what makes this conversation more difficult now is that the body has so many compensatory mechanisms right so you can survive on four hours of sleep for a Mm -hmm. very long time um and so like one thing that i think is happening right now for example is people are only now starting to really become aware of the way in which this sort of social isolation has affected their them long-term, right? Because, because we're so good at compensating. We're so good at telling ourselves a story that's different from reality. And so making it that clear for people in the moment is actually quite difficult, I think. 
Uh, you know, I, I completely agree with you. And I, I think that the the one thing we always work to reiterate with the organization is, you know, we call the organization physiology first, but not physiology only, in the sense that I think all of us, any one of us who's ever had, who's ever taken alcohol, who's ever had a drink of alcohol or had one too many drinks of alcohol, anybody who's ever been inebriated, anyone who's ever, ever had a drug experience, anyone who's ever had too much caffeine or taken a, a medication or been put under on anesthesia, we start to understand the role of physiology in psychological state. We understand mm -hmm. that something can change my bodily state and put me in a completely different frame of mind where maybe I'm, I'm completely out of sorts. I'm not at all like myself or I'm different because of the, the stimulation that I took in or, or the, the drug or the whatever the external stimulus was and that, that I haven't developed a mental disorder in that time. That physiology drives psychological state. You know, you and I have both run ultra marathon races. That's where I was. You know, if you'd asked me a series, you know, if you'd asked me a series of questions at, at sixty hours into a race, and I, I was seemed a little bit different because I had been running and perhaps hallucinating, um, and you know, completely um, in this state of of high sympathetic nervous system tone, complete physiological dysregulation. I'd answer a lot differently than if you caught me at a normal day at Physiology First University. And so a thought experiment that we like to share with students because it seems to resonate and it seems to help to create this line that we don't blur when we talk about physiology and psychology so that we can move up to the place where the lines are wonderfully blurred. Mm. The example that we'll often use is I'll say, if I'm giving a, a talk and you guys see me filling up my water bottle with you know, high test espresso, and just basically bang and back espresso shots, one after the other, after the other. What changes would you expect to see in me within 20 minutes, you know, 100 ounces in? And people are like, oh man, you'd probably be like a sweating, nervous wreck. You'd start to talk faster. You'd start to be jittery. Your body would respond to it. And it's like, yeah, but I wouldn't have developed a mental health disorder in that 20 minutes. If we can get to a place of resonance physiologically, we can understand what that means, then we can have the deeper conversations around culture, the conversations around what we're supposed to feel like during a period of isolation in a global pandemic, mm. a, a conversation around what happens when you take one of the most powerful social experiments of all time, unprecedented in its scope, and that is the experiment of social media. And you say, well, we're gonna, we're gonna quarantine the entire populace, and we're gonna leave them to their devices, meaning our actual smartphones and laptops, in a web of algorithms that have been used as, as a revenue model to sell them things that they've you know, supposedly you know, have told the internet that they wanted, and that that would box you into a very, very specific set of political ideologies, religious ideologies, social ideologies, and that you'd watch a community attack each other during a pandemic, mm. as opposed to embrace each other. How should we feel about that? There's no breathing exercise that's going to change that. Now we're moving beyond physiology. We're saying, let's establish a physiologically resonant state. And then let's have these really hard, complex, integrated conversations about our place in the world as humans as the world changes really fast. One thing that really struck me about the pandemic early on was the sort of, and and I, I don't want to say I get it, but I understand people are trying to make decisions for the collective, right? For the whole, but the ability it seemed to exercise for example was just taken away um from people on such mass levels what in your mind for the average person who is sort of i mean i know like there are parts of canada right now that are still just as locked down um and i really have a heart for those people and i know we have a ton of canadian listeners um but what, what to your mind is the sort of residual effect that people are seeing as they're kind of shaking off this pandemic season and trying to figure out, trying to find some semblance of normalcy again for themselves? That is a, such a powerful question, man. Yeah. You know, I think it's such a powerful question because we, I look at the impact, when you and I first spoke a year ago, we talked about youth mental health being an existential problem of the future. And I think if we're going to bring, as we circle back to that later in the show, Mm -hmm. If we're going to bring a wave of support to this issue, it's not a mental health issue. It's, it's an existential threat to the future because the people about to drive the bus into the future don't seem to have the skills and support that they need. One quarter of them have been diagnosed with a mental illness, and many of them have been put on addictive drugs at a very, very young age. And that seems like if you were to objectively zoom out and didn't care about humans or the future, and just to kind of make a quick baseline assessment of things that were able to impact the future for the negative and the positive, that you would put that on your list and say, wait a minute, 
this seems like an existential threat to the development of the future. That's a big deal. So I, I think that one of the things that happened, I know for young people, and I know it, it happened for me as well, um, we talk a lot with our students here, is a loss of trust. And it was a loss of, loss of trust in not only the decision-making process at local levels, and maybe even within households, I don't know, you know, but it, it, that's, a, that's a hierarchy in itself, um, but a loss of trust in both decision-making, a loss of trust in analytical ability. Did we have rational analytical conversations or emotionally reactive, um, you know, attack-based conversations? And I think that we young people are going to be uh, depending on the age, the least jaded, they still maybe expect that we could reasonably as adults look at a major problem and say, okay, let's have a rational discussion about this. Let's look at the data. Let's try to make decisions that take multiple factors into account. Let's not politicize all of the um, options. So I, I think that the ramifications may be a, a difference in the level of trust in leaders, mentors, and the community at large. And I think that what young people will have to do then and what all of us may have to do is learn to trust ourselves, learn about ourselves, and find others who are objective, rational, solutions-focused people, and build trust within those communities and not let resentment from the way that things went down become an emotional anchor that you can carry with you. But let it be an optimistic urge. Let, let, let it urge us to be able to build a society where we're able to have more objective, proactive, solutions-based conversations where we listen to one another where we actually seek to create solutions that work. Yeah, this um, this idea has become increasingly worrisome to me that we've outsourced our sort of personal authority and autonomy to ideologies, right? And so now situations really aren't nuanced anymore, right? Now it's really about trying to get my point across. And as this sort of battle of ideologies is taking place, the people underneath these ideologies are actually suffering in really massive ways. And so re getting a sense, reclaiming that sort of personal authority in order to make decisions that are going to support your own mental wellness and your families just seems so, so important to me. And I think when you look at, you know, we, we talk about physiology first, brain and body based learning, and we talk about 21st century skills. And I think a 21st century skill for young people and for all of us is to understand how social media algorithms work, because then you would start to understand why the world seems so disconnected, so lost, mm. so at war with itself. And you would be able to look at it through a lens of empathy, as opposed to a lens of rage. You would say, well, this makes perfect sense, because when you isolate people, they're going to be at their weakest psychologically. And most people, not all people, but most people, when they're in a weaker psychological state, are going to seek environments that challenge them the least and accept them the most. It's what we do when we're suddenly locked down and have never experienced a quarantine in our lives. And we start to realize that when we post certain things, refrains, slogans, ideologies, and that that gives us massive acceptance in our small social circle, that that feels good for us. We feel less alone in the scope of the world. Mm -hmm. And so we repeat the behavior. And then it gets harder and harder to say something different, something new to say, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't think we're going in the right direction here and I wanna raise my hand, but does that isolate me from the tribe that's helping me get through this, this period of time. That seems, that seems to be uh, spot on because so many people now I think are feeling as though like now it's actually asking questions seems to be the problem. Right. And so that's, that sounds exactly like what you're saying. It's like, well, because you can't, you can't stick out from the collective. You've got to sort of conform to get that sense of belonging to, to keep that coming. What, what are other? What, what I think, uh, I'm sorry. No, yeah, go no, for it. After you. No, I was going to change. Oh, no, that all, so all that I was good. <laughs> all that I was going to say, Rick, is that I think that one of the things, one of the things that we encourage young people to do here, because what we wanted to do in the past year was ask, are we contributing to the division in the things we're writing? Or are we contributing to to a coalescing of different um, practices, different levels of expertise, different solutions? And are we always putting forth solutions-based strategy? Because otherwise, it, it can be devastating to sit and look at the world and feel like something should be different, but not be in the active uh, building phase of that. So when we built Physiology First University, and we tried to create these resources to connect young people to each other and to intergenerational mentors, one of the things that we can sort of help them see through 
you know, is, is again, sort of seeing through the technology and seeing through why, see, seeing through these mechanisms from an objective standpoint and asking why are things like they are? The why question, the not how do I feel about this as the first question, mm-hmm. but the, if, I w- if I could literally remove myself from this planet and look at it objectively, why are things as they seem? Why, why do we need each other more, but we seem less capable of connecting? Why are we watching our mental health, or however we're going to talk about it, decline in a period of peak abundance? Why are we watching global trends that we can look at through objective third-party data um, show us a world that has so much opportunity, so many opportunities to collaborate and build a future that's really inspiring, but we feel disconnected, we feel alone, and we feel disempowered. And if we could only ask why without blame on ourselves and others, I think that we can have the conversations that let us actually build the future. So that was a big goal of ours was where could we allow people to have these conversations and could we remove them from the Instagram comments and the Facebook comments where people are, again, either attacked for thinking, attacked for thinking differently, Mm -hmm. or simply losing critical social approval because they're starting to question some of the decisions being made and some of the larger social issues that they, they don't necessarily toe the ideological party line in their small group. But instead of speaking out, they toe the line for community. If mm-hmm. we can create alternate communities that actually support optimistic, hard-hitting, real conversations about the future, I think we may be able to solve that problem by creating a better alternative. Yeah. So, so where is that? Right. Cause as you're saying that I'm like, yes, 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 that's exactly right. How do we have that conversation? Um, because it seems that the, the normal gathering places for humans right now, as you said, social media and these things, they have become so polarized that it just feels very difficult to have any kind of real conversation that would pay any attention to nuance. Well, that, 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 I'm so glad you, you, you sort of led us there because, you know, if you look at the model of Facebook and the initial slogan of Facebook was, you know, move fast and break things. And it sounds really sexy. I mean, it is very sexy entrepreneurism, kind of like move fast, break things. Well, they did. And a lot of things broke. And one of them was sort of our social fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other seemed to be our, our common anchor in the sea of reality. It just, it's, it's not, we were having a harder time dropping an anchor into a collective shared reality. So with Physiology First University, we almost asked the opposite question, like, let's move real slow. Mm. Let's appreciate the fact that having four people on a Zoom looking each other in the eyes of different generations and talking about the future is immensely valuable and that we don't need to drive a hundred more people in the room to make it better. We need to give those people the tools to go out in their community and scale the conversation. Yeah, man, I love that. That the lost art of being human. It's great. <laughs> um, what are other yeah, yeah. 21st century skills? Um, this is something I'm interested, right? Because the world is so complex, right? And we have such finite processing power. And so we're sort of overwhelmed constantly. That would be so, you know, without this landslide of information that we're that we're being forced to reckon with at all times. What, what in your mind are 21st century skills? Well, you know, I was speaking to a group of high schoolers at, a, at a, um, before the pandemic, a large, a large group. It was like a lunchtime seminar, so like 150 kids there. I asked them this. I said, what do you think the skills in the future are? And there's some great answers that came out of that. Um, and, you know, and a lot of them in that school had to do with resilience and had to do with grit and had to do with, you know, qualities like that. But I, I, I would say... For one, physiological state regulation, meaning in an overstimulating world that can change the state of the nervous system, mm-hmm. which is going to drive our perceptual capacity. Mm-hmm. Being able to sort of clean the clear the windshield in the blizzard, the blizzard of noise, the blizzard of technology, the blizzard of information and sensation, to be able to use something like breath or some body-based practice to actually lower the heart rate and, and shift into a more physiologically resonant state. But then I would say attention and clarity. The ability to pay attention and to know what not to pay attention to in a world of of attention-seeking technologies. And then the hardest one is clarity. Who am I? Where am I going? What is purpose and meaning and fulfillment? And I I really wonder, and I'd love to dive. You're one of the voices on the internet that sticks out to me. You stand out to me. When I see your content in this noisy sea of information, it resonates. It's, It's powerful 
because it takes us back to a place on the map of human potential that I don't think many young people even realize exists. And that place is purpose, that place is deep human connection, that place is fulfillment, that place is potential. Mm -hmm. Imagine the cultural and psychological ramifications of not even having those, those landmarks to have a fulfilling deep human experience on your map of potential. That would be devastating, you know, uh, physiology aside, that should be devastating existentially. So I think that clarity is, is a key critical skill because it can ask, it can lead you to ask, where am I going? And if you're going to ask, where am I going? You have to ask things like, who am I and why? Right, right, right. And so that, uh, man, this is so, so perfect because last week I did a podcast on the way that we see the world, sort of a four-part series, which will get bigger. Um, but this idea that when, as you just said, like your perceptual reality changes, right? And so the actual world that you're looking at changes as your nervous system is ramped up, right? And as you become more sympathetic, what you know, the options available to you actually change because your mm -hmm. mind starts to think in terms of survival rather than thriving. And those are very different modes of being in the world. Uh, and so I love that you said that, like that this finding this place of nervous system attunement just feels so important to me. And if I could to sort of tie those together, I think a lot of people, when they have a lack of purpose, for example, they find themselves actually shifting into overdrive. Let me just do more. Let me just like, like I'll, I'll earn my way to this. I'll figure this out if I can just do more. So rather than the pause and the reflective questions about the deep things of reality that your soul's actually wanting to know about, you just say, well, I can just, I'll post something. I'll put something out there. I'll, you know, I'll start a new project. I'll start a new business. And so you actually choose to go further into that sympathetic state rather than hit the brakes because hitting the brakes is pretty uncomfortable for a, you know, a Western raised modern person. Uh, ama yeah, amazing analysis. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think a, a good metaphor for the nervous system is the highway. I think about the highway, you know, you're driving on a highway and you're looking at the human nervous system on full display and people are looking at yours. Mm -hmm. You know, you see somebody driving so, I mean, they are on your bumper and you glance in the mirror and their knuckles are white. They're, they're, for them, time is racing. Maybe they left late. Maybe, they're, maybe there's an emergency. Maybe their alarm didn't go off. But for them, the perception of time is clearly sped up and they speed past you and they cut through the next car. And you can see the state of the nervous system, but the highway doesn't give a damn. The highway is exactly as it was before they pulled into the on-ramp. The highway will be there when they pull on the off-ramp. And it's almost like this ability to, you're looking at one, you're looking at a system within a system, right? And we are a system within a system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think it becomes, again, a good analogy because when you're watching someone in a high state of stress, you see how they're, what their driving habits, how they change. Somebody's uh, clearly having a different experience on that road than you are. And sometimes you're that person. You have to catch yourself, right? Like, you're like, wait totally. a minute, why am I? Right. Time is racing for me because I left my house late. That's what perception is by nature. But if I never went on this highway, it would still be there. Things would be just as they are. And that ability to recognize that perception is not reality mm -hmm. is probably a skill of the future. Yeah, man, that's so well said. It's interesting too, as you're just talking about it, and I'm just thinking about it, like oftentimes the way we treat let's look at like attention problems, right? We treat them by shifting them into a permanent sympathetic state, right? All day. And then what happens then is you move things like trait neuroticism to the right. So then you end up getting treated for anxiety, you know? So uh, there sort of turns into this damn avalanche. Well, I mean, let's, we talked a little bit about the power of language, but I think the question that was at the heart of our first conversation, you and I, is when you use the word disorder, to talk about a very natural physiological response because you don't understand the physiology, you've given someone this very heavy blanket of having been labeled disordered, unlike others. Something is inherently wrong mm. because you didn't understand what happens to, let's take a um, let's take a 12 year old and let's make them completely sedentary and let's put them on video games or screens for 12 hours a day. Let's feed them nothing but orange crush soda and you know a Hot Pockets for a week and ask what should happen? What okay. is the natural physiological response? Well, many things should shift in their body and their experience psychologically will be altered because of that disruption, this dysregulation of physiological state. 
And if we can't ask that question, we can't effectively use the word disorder or illness. And then that leads us back to where we started, which is the interesting thing about mental health is we can't define the word mental and we can't define health. <laughs> we can't define anxiety. We can't define depression. We can't define a disorder or illness in these contexts. Mm-hmm. But anxiety and depression are definable physiological terms. When we ask young people what they think that they mean, we don't ever hear about neurotransmitters or glucocorticoids in the body or the nervous system. We hear a vague and abstract, um, uh, almost like they're grasping for the answer in real time themselves. And a great uh, example of this was presenting in a class in Freeport High School and asking, we're talking about, I said, Who's, who thinks that anxiety is a, a big problem? You hear in the school or at large, every young person. And a, y- a young girl said, yeah, you know, I, I have anxiety. I just got diagnosed with it the, the other day. And, you know, we waited a little while on it. We certainly didn't put her in the spot anyway. But then we circled back a little while later. I said, hey, you know, who here can define anxiety? And there's, there's like a, a moment in the room of complete quiet between the healthcare workers and teachers and the students because we've been talking about anxiety for 20 minutes. Some people even had it. Mm. They'd personified it. They'd been diagnosed with it. But none of us could come to an agreement of whether we were talking about an actual physiological response of the human nervous system or whether we were talking about an abstract and perhaps outdated psychological construct. The one at least has the ability for us to build a tangible plan to manage anxiety. But the other lives out in the, in the weeds. And what would you do? You would just have it until you someone told you that you didn't have it and there's not a lot of agency there. Yeah, right, right. And so that was part of that's that's a really interesting just anecdotal experience. Um and that's part of what I meant by this being tied into the whole thing, right? It's that we in especially in west in the western medicine model, like we become our diagnosis. They become identities. They become who we are. That's so hard. And and it, it was an optimistic um lens though, I think. We talk about this a lot at Physiology First University with our members, and you know, you and I have touched on it as well, which is if we can break the language trap, if we can find the empowering, proactive, exciting language to talk about upgrading the minds uh, to, to, to really create a kick-ass future, who wouldn't be on board with that? When we, when we work with the students here, that's what we're talking about. And I wonder what the community at large here in Maine thinks that we do here, <laughs> you know, which is why we, 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 you, see, you see us on Instagram. We're posting a lot. We have kids who are coming in here. They're training barefoot, throwing medicine balls at tires. They're doing pull-ups and swinging kettlebells. They're doing breathing exercises. They're learning about the, their neurology. They're reading. They're hanging out. They're talking. That's, it's the most, it's a very, very like, like high fire environment. People are kids, they can't wait to come. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that when we talk about mental health or mental health education um, at large, I think if people hear that as mental illness education, I don't think you're going to get a lot of signups for your mental illness education class. I don't think people are going to put that on a bumper sticker. I don't think they're going to say, oh, damn, I can't wait for the next class. So we've sort of, in a backwards way, used the word health to mean illness. But I don't know who would come to a mental health education class. I think we need to be talking about mental fitness or we need to be talking about specific attributes like focus, attention, goal clarity, state management. And breaking these things down into their into their parts as opposed to having this big, you know, just sort of um, lumped together terminology in which you wouldn't know where to start to improve anything. Yeah, yeah, perfectly said. I like the idea of using fitness, right? Because that implies a sort of adaptability to context. And that's essentially what we're, what we're looking well, to do. Well, one of the things it does too, Rick, and I'd love to talk to you about this specifically because of your writing, which I think is beautiful, mm-hmm. um, especially on subjects like this is, you know, I think that one of the things we're dealing with is, is a lack of cognitive ease. And you have these traps of cognitive morality. And cognitive, cognitive morality is its own thing, right? If, if an issue is immediately easy to understand, and you, you've sort of anchored it to something else, and you're kind of like, I totally get what the problem is and what I can do about it. And there's a cognitive ease to it. If you were holding a race to support, um, you know, medical advancements in cancer research, I think everyone would say, well, damn, that's great. I should support that thing. Mm-hmm. The more that something loses a level of cognitive ease, it forces you to do a lot of mental work. Mm-hmm. And when the first barrier mentally is you hear mental health and your mind goes to, again, sort of the darker side of, of untreated mental illness, it's very hard to get people to, to find the ease with which they're going to say, I'm on board with that. 
So I think a new language that really talks about, that attaches words that we understand as a positive. When people hear fitness, they seem to think about that as like a self-adapt, like like an adaptive quality that's positive. Mm -hmm. And that, that then makes mental mean something positive. I grew up in New Jersey, man. Mental meant anything and everything. Right, right. right? It, it was almost like, it, you know, we didn't know, like, what do you mean? Somebody would say, well, that person goes mental. And it's like, what does that mean? We have, these are cultural artifacts. So if you can attach a new word to an old word, you can influence the entire statement. And I think that helping kids build mental fitness, helping them build maybe 21st century mental health, 21st century skill building. We as an organization are still asking these questions about the new language that's necessary to invest all the people who are in this high performance world, the world of, of leading edge health and medicine, the people out here in our communities for whom I think if they knew what we were working to do with these kids, they would say, well, damn, that's really important. Mm-hmm. But instead they're not really sure. And I think that that's one of the biggest challenges in updating language from a century ago in a brand new environment that's different than anything the human being's been in before. Yeah, man, that's, I love what you guys are up to. I, that's so important. I think there's, you know, I watch debates and I, I actually personally like to engage in debate when it's done well, not probably what we would think of a debate <laughs> in the political sphere. Um, but, you know, I always wrestle with the fact that like, okay, this person's read different books than I've read and they have a different they have a different glossary in their mind, right? And so we're all sort of trying to do that dance and figure out how do we be here and create a symbiotic environment so that we can all sort of, mm-hmm. you know, chase what we're, what we're after in this life. So yeah, that's uh, taking that back to baseline and like really starting to define these key terms feels feels really, really important to me. Do you still see breath? And I know that you're you've got to be on the sort of forefront of the research of this stuff, sort of trying to pay attention to the trends and, and what what's coming out in studies. Do you see breath as the quickest way into this physiology as, as the quickest way to manually sort of take hold of it? You know, I, I absolutely do. And I'd love to follow that up with a bunch of caveats because okay. it's probably also a, a pathway into a kind of neuroticism where we've, we've over-determined the value of the tool. And I think we're going to see that a lot in the larger human performance space, because when you use an exercise to regulate your state, and it gives you a kind of agency and a kind of empowered feeling. Mm -hmm. Just say, I felt anxious, but now I feel calm and focused. I felt like I was really revved up, but now I feel you're going to, you might start to apply that hammer to to nails, you know, to every nail that you can. Right. And that the challenge there is once you've established a baseline physiologically resonant state, you've been able to lower your heart rate by a few beats, you're still going to have all of life to contend with. And if we try to use breathing exercises to, you know, to, to blunt the edge of the realness of the moment that we're in and find that that doesn't work, it may even shape, I think, our perception of the value of the exercise, mm-hmm. right? So I, I think that there's a real value in saying, again, sort of what is, what is physiology? What is a physiologically, um, what is a tool to ma- measure, manage physiological state? And then if I can do that, how do I recognize what it is and what it isn't so that I don't start to apply breathing exercises to places where I actually needed to face hard decisions. I needed to make better choices or subconscious elements of my own psychology are driving me to ask hard questions and they're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, what, what are the pieces of language that I think we may be able to kind of oversimplify physiology and psychology through is just the idea of, you know, I feel is physiology, I, I think, is psychology. Mm-hmm. If we could at least maybe start there, then we can separate when I need to do a feeling thing, like breathing or you know another practice, and when I need to do a thinking thing, and that, that thinking is really uncomfortable and really hard because it forces me to really look at myself and ask some damn hard questions. Yeah, man, I love that. And also just recognizing the value in both, right? We're a very thinking culture. We'd Mm -hmm. rather stay up here than sink into here. And so just recognizing the sort of intuitive wisdom of the body, right? It would just Mm -hmm. be helpful in making those decisions. Most people believe that they can think their way out of their situations and they end up overthinking is what they do, right? They think in problems and so they attract more problems when, when in reality, their body probably, um, probably knows better than they do, right? 
But, you know, w- one of the things that, um, and this is actually something that I think Brian McKenzie had mentioned, and I thought it was a brilliant point, a truly brilliant point, is he said, you know, it, often we use breathing to, to regulate state as opposed to noticing it. And noticing it is probably the more important thing. If I am clearly um, just, if my respiration rate is sped up, if my breaths are shallow, if I'm breathing through my mouth while I'm driving a car, which I wouldn't normally do, and I can notice it, A, I can do something to shift back to a more physiologically resonant state. Mm-hmm. But B, I can ask, what drove that process? Oh, where is my life right now? Am I, am I doing the self-care practices that I committed to doing? Am I sleeping well? Sometimes the alarm bell doesn't need to be silenced or muffled. Sometimes we don't need to rip the alarm off the wall and try to pull the battery out because it's going off. Right. I think sometimes the real value is to say, oh, that's an alarm, man. Yeah. It's ringing for a reason. <laughs> right, right, right. Right, yeah. And that's, um, you, you kind of have to recognize that you're not necessarily entitled to a comfortable life, right? Because at the end of the day, people are wanting to blunt the 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 harshness of reality in some way right that might be the hardest part of the whole thing you know is is if we're going to talk about disorder or illness we have to have a conversation on how uncomfortable we should feel in this moment in time mm-hmm. that's a really deep conversation if you feel if you feel completely calm and focused and chill all the time maybe that's not appropriate uh, from, you know, as we work to pursue our own potential and growth, it's uncomfortable. So maybe you're not moving anywhere. And there's a world that that has so many challenges in it that I, I think need our passion and our vision and our voices. And I think that we need to be part of solving big picture problems at a certain stage in our own growth to be connected to each other and part of a, the building of the world. And I think that that's uncomfortable. Totally. Both of those things are really uncomfortable and it may cause you to be sleepless at night while you're trying to brainstorm solutions. And it may mm-hmm. force you into really uncomfortable positions of risk and of challenge. And you're going to feel a, a high sympathetic drive as you try to figure out the risk calculation. And that, that discomfort is so critical and experiencing it certainly isn't an illness or disorder. And then you get to when does something become pathological? And these are the deeper questions I think about mental health. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's such a good point, right? Because it is our challenges that that call to our potential, right? We need an obstacle to grow against or we don't grow, right? And so, um, all right. So I really want to get into uh, Physiology University and the uh, Physiology First University and the uh, running event. Real quick, though, I do want to get your thoughts on uh, fear. I don't know if it's something you've been thinking about maybe it's something that you lump in with just a sympathetic response but during this pandemic the the ability to manage fear in a sort of global conversation about how we should manage fear and what that even means feels really important to me specifically because it's so well monetized and weaponized right and there's no governing bodies or regulations on how you can use fear so it's sort of like you're you're constantly having to interact with it. And I'm just curious if, you, if you've thought a little bit about how that affects our physiology or um, a- any of your thoughts. Man, on it. I mean, we, we could have a whole, like, totally. we could go, because to, to share a little bit of backstory, and this is, you know, this is actually going to conveniently kind of segue into Physiology First University. Perfect. So the thing that we built before Physiology First University was a project all about fear. The whole project was about the neuroscience and physiology of fear, and it was called BRAVE. And the idea behind Brave was a new way of using social media, a way that would actually connect us human to human, which is what Physiology First University seeks to do, um, a way that we could talk about courage as a skill and to kind of define the difference between courage and, I don't know, just banging your head into a wall out of some sense of want to be perceived as resilient. Mm-hmm. What is a truly courageous action? We, we got into the neurophysiology of fear and we got into the social implications of fear. And we built it out as an app. And it was one of the most exciting projects of our development here. And we learned really quickly through the process so much more about the world, of the dark side of technology and data and how technology goes wrong and how the best, the path to hell is kind of paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to put out something that asks people to share their deepest vulnerabilities and engage in a conversation on fear, unbeknownst to us completely through our own, just being naive, it's like, well, you'd be dumping the most sensitive, important data. Mm. Data is the new oil. Data is the new currency of the internet. 
And we were just really, we're idealistic. We said like, this is gonna be awesome. People will talk about fear and look at courage as a skill and they'll connect in new ways and they won't just be clicking, they'll be connecting. And really quickly we recognized what it was to build a technology and how the process itself is built to sort of foster an addictive nature to the technology. Mm. And soon it doesn't become about the person at all. So as we were diving into these issues around fear and building a technology, we abandoned the project. And it eventually evolved years later into Physiology First University, where we said, what is mentally healthy technology? What is technology that doesn't use a data mining model? What is advertising free technology? What are technologies that happen face-to-face where you can see people's eyes, you can look at them? And what are technologies that allow us to talk about things like fear without dumping personal vulnerable information into the sea of the internet? So that, that it came from an exploration of what is fear? What is it from an evolutionary perspective? When is mm-hmm. it a driving force? When is it a limiter? And to your point, when is it a weapon? And I think that one thing we all learned this year is that fear can override rational consciousness very easily and fear can be contagious just like any virus. Right. So like fear is one of the most powerful things we can possibly grapple with and have very honest conversations about when it look at any great moment in history where acts of atrocity have been committed there's almost always an undercurrent of a driving fear that's either been stoked or that's that's been built and it seems like we're capable of doing really bad things when we're really scared so i think we really have to find the medium to talk more about fear and what it is and how to leverage it yeah yeah totally and to that point about atrocity right i really come to think about fear as one of the only tenable forces forces of possession in the world right like if you're scared of me i can make you do whatever i want it's like one of the only ways actually right and it's so such a deep, it's such a deep power tool it's a social power tool i i was writing a piece this morning for a project that i'm working on and it has to do with experiences being young in new jersey growing up and like knowing that there was somebody out there who was waiting for you in the parking lot mm. or a group of kids who wanted to jump you that kind of pervasive fear is it's it shifts physiology Mm-hmm. It, it, it occupies the dominant portion of the mind. And then uh, to really you know, circle back to a great question that you asked, which are what are some of the long-term ramifications of um, COVID? Mm-hmm. Beyond just maybe losing trust, I think that we, we, we didn't take the number one opportunity that could have been taken from COVID. And I think the number one opportunity would be a, a massive campaign to educate people about respiration physiology, virology, immunology, the spread of viruses so that we left it feeling like we knew more about the world, but right. that did not happen. Right. And so we're in, right. So right now where we are in Maine, we're, we're, we're seeing this next wave of sort of psychosocial um, pressure on young people and maybe all of us. If you go into the local Whole, Whole Foods now, the Whole Foods still has a big mask, must wear a mask mandate, mm-hmm. but people are choosing to bypass it by whether or not they've been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening is in us and them mentality in the minds of young people, 10 years old, 11, 12, who are walking in and everything's different. Some people are masked, some people are not. And it, it shows a lack of, they don't have the analytical tools because they haven't been taught in school to make decisions based on things like ventilation, uh, immunology, virology, basic data, understanding viral transmission and viral load. So I I imagine how lost you must feel and how much fear you must feel to see the world kind of becoming more separated that way and watching the perceptible tensions between people in masks and without them and wondering where you stand and where your family stands and not even having the data to, because you you don't, you don't, you know, I'm not expecting 10 year olds to be sitting here reading, you know, (laughs) 210 page reports about CO2 levels and, you know, parts per million in terms of ventilation. But to feel like you have the educational foundation to understand your place in that tension-filled, culturally dense environment of us and them, masks and no masks, our family's decisions and other decisions. And we didn't give them the tools by which I think to analyze that situation with agency. So I think that there's a lot of fear that comes from a lack of education. Maybe we missed the boat on that one because the boat would have been respiratory education during a respiratory pandemic. <laughs> right, right. You think so? That was 
Man, in the early years of your life, you know, you're mapping the world out. So you're, you're creating a mental model of what this place is like that you're in right now, which you haven't been in very long, by the way. So you're trying to figure out how do I survive here? And when you're a kid, right? Like I remember when we were children, maybe I didn't want to go to school, but all of the adults agreed that I should, right? So there's a, there's a sense of safety in my world that I could lean on. And now that that is being taken away. And one of the long-term effects of losing a sense of safety in your, in, in your map of the world is that you are less likely to go out and take the risks necessary to succeed in this life. And so I think 10, 20 years from now, we're going to have a such a risk-averse culture that innovation is going to slow. Like It's going to affect things that we just can't even imagine right now. No, I'm going to share a powerful example of this because we had um, we had a young high schooler come in here and our gym, the actual gym itself, the distance project, it, the garage doors are wide open, the windows are open, there's a ventilation fan on, and we showed the kids how to measure carbon dioxide levels in the room in terms of parts per million to determine things like what the data says about viral load, to show mm -hmm. them, to engage them in the process, to say how we're thinking about this. And, and, and they're intrigued because it isn't happening in their schools, for example. They're not measuring things like this at all. And I remember a young man coming into the gym. This happened on several occasions, but I remember this one instance really just burned itself in my mind. And he walked in accidentally without his mask on in an environment that was as ventilated as any could be. We all had to be masked. It was the mandate. And the look on his face was a look of pure fear, as if mm -hmm. he'd somehow endangered others and had put himself in danger. And he grabbed his face and he put his hand over his face and he raced out to get it. And it was this moment of pure animal fear on both sides yeah as, as if you you know and i thought and nowhere near reality this, and nowhere near reality and education could have shifted the reality so I, I i think that if we look at the larger existential issue beyond physiology we have to ask is our educational system preparing kids for the future and if you start to look at the data on that you're going to come probably to a concise answer that it is not they're not learning the key critical things that you're going to need to navigate the 21st century economy. So what will happen then? What will happen when an educational system couldn't make the necessary pivots to even prioritize respiratory education during a global respiratory pandemic as a thing to focus on? And they just stuck with the curriculum as it was. They couldn't pivot. The things that can't pivot, they're not going to, something will, will, will obsolete them. Yeah, they'll die. And, and, and that, that, op, that optimistically leads me to believe that the next wave of disruptive education is new it's it's community-based and it's it's technological mm. and that brings us sort of back to physiology first university which is asking we're working to ask the question what are powerful technological tools that are mentally healthy that are not data mining operations that give people autonomy and agency and a path towards lifelong learning that connect them rather than disconnect them and that that put the key critical things we'd need to know about ourselves the mind body and brain and the world, social media, the economy, the future, in one place where people could connect about learning about them and hope to build something inspiring next to a system that isn't isn't working optimally for anyone. Right. So um, that's perfect for people that are listening to this and like want to be involved in this conversation, want to be involved in the work that you're doing, want to get their kids involved in it. Um, is, is there a way for them to do that if they're not where you're at in Maine? Absolutely. So we just built the first physical campus for Physiology First uh, University here in Freeport, Maine. Mm -hmm. We have a student lounge. We have a little coffee shop. Kids can come. They can do homework, hang out, do workshops, work out. But the, you know, there's also um, the online learning platform. And this is where people can access any of the content on things like breathing, mindset, sleep, and then some of the more uh, nuanced issues that we talked about, about future preparedness. You know, understanding social media, we're building a course on that. Um, understanding cool. 21st century economics they can get involved in a couple of ways if people want to actually hit the ground running with this what we wanted to build was the decentralized approach to 21st century mental health education so they can basically set up a pop-up campus anywhere anytime physiology first banner their home their garage a public park a gym a community center can become a campus and that can allow them to hold a workshop with their family their friends the larger community we can basically take 21st century mental health education, physiology-based education, and pop it up globally at no cost to anybody. The resources mm -hmm. are there. It just takes a lot and a desire to be a community-based educator and to bring this stuff into the communities that may not have had it. So that's one way that people can get involved in the university. 
Cool. I'll link up. Uh, if you want to send me a link, I'd love to put it in the awesome. show notes of this episode for people. So to end here, I would love to, you know, I was reading, uh, I think it was this morning. I was reading on your Instagram, the story about the $20 kettlebell. Man. So can we, let's do this. Cause I think we're going to go down a, 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 okay. a fun pathway there. I, you asked about how people can get involved and I want to leave one more thing out there because I know we won't circle back to it. And you, we talked about the beginning. So that is the race for the future. So a race for the future is an ultra marathon race on July 24th. That's right. Yes, and sorry. our, our yeah, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I, I guess we said in the beginning, we're like, we're yeah, definitely we're... gonna die. I love talking about this stuff. But uh, Megan Bryant Stornelli are incredible human beings who run this beautiful farm called Snowfields Farm in Pownall, Maine acres upon acres of gorgeous land it's a working farm and they just have hearts of gold and they got involved in the organization about a year ago and they let us use the land for this really amazing ultra marathon race it's 24 hours you can run come out and run for an hour you can run for 24. it's a chance to support the organization all of the you know registration um, dues go towards uh, physiology first and you can participate virtually from anywhere in the world or you can come on site and actually run on the trails and it's just such a blast because all night long, we're not just running, we're having conversations about how to build a future that we're actually inspired to live into. And how mm -hmm. do we help young people build a future that they're inspired to live into? So if people want to know more about that, they can go to physiologyfirst.org. Uh, I'm excited for the race. We're training for it right now, all of us. And I just wanted to shout that out because I know that you and I are about to deep dive. And just like we said in the beginning, I'm like, we're totally going to forget this race. So that's a way that people can get involved. They can, they can train for it and that's fun they can run it and they can learn more about, they can tie into the sort of global conversation with others who are doing the same. Totally. And what's the date of that again? July 24th. July 24th. Cool. Yeah. And so again, yeah. for people listening to this, we'll link that up in the show notes of this episode as well. So for the final question, um, we don't have to go super yeah. deep, but I was just listening to you or reading your story about sort of you were at this point in your life where you had $20 and you invested, you bought a kettlebell with it. You started working out, you became a personal trainer, you started the first personal training company. Now you're at this point where you're launching Physiology First University. What in that process spoke to you that made you want to go down this direction of having a conversation about mental health awareness? Like, why is this important to you? I, you know, because I lived the other side of it. Mm. You know, growing up in New Jersey, I lived the other side of it. I lived to be in a 14 and 15 year old who was drinking, like out drinking adults feeling depression and anxiety beyond measure and thinking that something was fundamentally wrong with me and working with mental health practitioners at the time who were saying, you know, you have manic, you're manic depressive, you have anxiety disorder and believing that story and, and recognizing later through my own journey of saying, I want, I think I feel like feeling good is a potential. And I got pulled into that potential by others who were training in jujitsu who were running, who were doing things I'd never done in my life. I never played a sport. I was never physically active. I never thought that sleep and nutrition and, 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 and movement and physiology were the drivers for a mental state that felt terrible to exist within. Mm. And when I was introduced to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and then to ultra marathon running, and I, I can't relate to feeling that bad again. I wake up in the morning, I feel joyful in my life right now. And I feel, I feel, um, this is uh, a, an interesting thing we can maybe touch on a little bit, is I, I always tell people I'm happy and frustrated all the time. And what I mean by that is like, I think that our state, and there's some cool neuroscience research on this, is, is I think that we, we seem to do well with an experience of mild frustration to solve difficult problems. We're not sort of designed to be in permanent peace. We're kind of designed to be slightly agitated, like, oh, I want to get to the heart of it. I want to solve it. Mm. So when I went through that journey myself of saying, I feel terrible, I feel awesome. I'm training for a hundred mile race. I'm waking up feeling like a new human being. I mean, I, I, my energy levels are just through the roof comparatively. And now I know through lived experience that the trajectory and journey is possible. And when I began to dive into some of the research that correlates things like, um, a propensity for addiction, a propensity for depression, and things like athleticism. You recognize dopamine and dopamine pathways as this big driver in reward and motivation. I got really interested in the neuroscience of dopamine and how it, how, again, how it sort of drives motivation and behavior. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I was able to live this journey and go from uh, complete personal transformation 
that if I didn't find that mentor, if I didn't have that person drag me into this opposite culture, I don't know where my life would be. And I, I thought through that experience, I was so damn grateful that someone did that, that I said, I want to be someone who can help me do that. And every project that we started was based on that idea of how do we do it and how do we do it at scale? How do we show people that on the map of potential, you feeling empowered, you feeling fulfilled, you feeling purposeful, and not feeling like you're, you're zoned out, chilling out on a lily pad all day long, feeling agitated to solve big picture problems because you have the capacity to be part of the architecture of the future. That that's possible. And knowing it through my own lived experience made me really passionate to build bridges for others and with others that let more young people step into that, 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 that power that we all have when we pursue our actual potential. Mm, man, that's so well said. Dave, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your journey with my audience and, and to talk about these difficult topics. I really want to go down the, the conversation route of talking about dopaminergic pathways, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I think it's a whole other conversation. Um, but man, you're welcome back here at any point because I, I really enjoy what you have to say. Brother, I look forward, I was looking forward to this all week. I really appreciate, appreciate your writing. I appreciate you. And I so deeply appreciate the chance to share our work and to connect with us. So thank you. Cool. Thank you, man. Mm-hmm.